If you didn't know, my, my wife Stephanie and I were going to be missionaries in China a few years back. Um, we had all the logistics figured out. We were fully fundraised. And it didn't end up working out. But um, one thing I learned, I learned a lot of things through that season. One thing I learned is that even though missionaries are incredible and called by God, it's just as important to support them here and to realize that we have a role here as well locally to glorify God. And Jesus can reveal himself here just as he does to them in those places too. So, speaking of Jesus revealing himself, that's what we're going to be discussing today. Jesus revealing himself. We're going to discuss how Jesus unveiled his authority in three different stories in Matthew today. First, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you that I have this opportunity, Lord, and I pray that you will give me the right words to speak into the hearts of these people and let let us uh, leave changed and have a great time of fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So the sermon today is titled, Authority Unveiled. We're going to be starting in Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. You can start flipping there. But before we go there, I want to talk to you about what's going on in Matthew. What's going on in Matthew chapter 8? Matthew is just one of the four Gospels. Matthew writes his Gospel in a unique way. He writes it to a predominantly Jewish audience. And he writes it in a way where he's trying to show that Jesus is a new kind of Moses, a better Moses, which is something that, you know, in the Old Testament, Moses is kind of like the top guy. So let's keep that in mind as we're reading this. And Jesus had just finished giving, uh, likely, his most famous discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And there he's redefining and explaining the meaning behind the Old Testament and the Old Testament laws, which the people, the Jewish people had gotten way too carried away with. And in the earlier parts of Matthew chapter 8, we see Jesus starting to heal people and unveil his true power. And then he also prepares people for what it looks like to follow him. It's not going to be easy to follow him. And it's not going to be anything like they're used to. It's going to require sacrifice and immense amounts of faith. And our first story today comes when Jesus and his disciples got on a boat to sail across the Sea of Galilee. We're starting in verse 23, Matthew chapter 8. You can follow along on the screen or read in your Bible or you got a Bible in front of you in the pews if you need it. When he got in the boat, his disciples followed him and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep and they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid? O you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? So let's discuss what's going on in this story. I'm going to have Liz put up a a map of the Sea of Galilee so we can look at it. Um, Jesus is crossing. It's kind of like tiny, but in the way, way top, you may not be able to see it, in the way, way top is the city Capernaum. That's where Jesus is at right now. Okay? I wish I had one of those little laser pointer things. Way, way top, all right? That's where Jesus is. And he is going to be traveling all the way down the center of the lake, or the, the sea, to the bottom. The very bottom city there is called Gadara. And that's where he's going to be traveling. All the way, basically like vertically, straight down. Okay, so it's the, the longest journey you can take across the Sea of Galilee, pretty much. 
And aboard the, aboard the boat with him are his disciples, many of whom had spent their days as experienced fishermen, probably on that same sea. Um, and they spent hours there. We're good with the map. Thanks. So this is going to be a very long journey. Even on calm waters, it's going to be probably a, a few hours journey traveling across that whole lake. Um, something I want to, us to think about is we need to read this from a first century mindset. And when we read it with a first century mindset, we understand Jewish scriptures a little more. And in Jewish scriptures, when we see the word the waters, it generally means there's some kind of like danger or destruction coming. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says, that in Jewish writing, the sea remained a place and a power of darkness and evil, threatening and wild. Or one more time. Uh, in Jewish writing, the sea remained a place and a power of darkness and evil, threatening and wild. So when we encounter waters in the Bible, we're supposed to be expecting something dangerous or, um, or some kind of destruction to come. So let's kind of think through our, through our Old Testament Bible. What kind of examples of dark, threatening, chaotic waters are there in the Old Testament? Well, I can think of a few. Um, one being in the very first chapter when we have chaotic waters in the book of Genesis chapter 1. We got chaotic waters in the creation narrative that God calms and brings creation to. Five chapters later, we have um, Noah and the, the ark story when we have chaotic waters destroying humanity but, but leading Noah and his family to deliverance and God controlling those waters. Then uh, perhaps the most well-known story is when Moses is cornered by Pharaoh's army after being led out of slavery, and he's got the Red Sea in front of him, and God controls those waters and parts them so that Moses and the Israelites can be delivered through on dry land. Another story is, a similar story is in Joshua, when, when his people walk through the Jordan River, and God parts that Jordan River as well, and they walk through and are delivered into the Promised Land. And these are all um, it's, a, it's kind of a consistent theme of chaotic waters being dangerous, but God controlling and commanding those waters, directing them, calming them, all by um, the all-powerful created, or creator of said waters. So we have those examples to think on when we see Jesus and his disciples going into the water. Our light bulbs should be saying, danger's coming. It's not all the time that we see water, but generally um, in the Old Testament, that's what, we're, that's what we should be looking for. And we, sure enough, we see trouble not long after. All right, so the Sea of Galilee is in this very intriguing um, geographical location. It's to the east of Israel, and um, to the east of the Sea of Galilee, we have this hot, dry, desert air. To the west of it, we have this cool, moist air from the Mediterranean Sea. And when those two collide, we get some pretty gnarly storms. We get some winds and um, hot, dry air and moist, cool air don't mix well together. So that's, it's, it's a common place for storms to happen. Liz, can we pull up that video? I'm going to show you a short video of what a storm may have looked like on the Sea of Galilee. So this was taken in 1992. Oh, okay. There's a guy telling you. That's good. Thanks. Um, so those, those waves were um, recorded as 10-foot waves in that storm. So that's 
maybe what the, the sea looked like. Maybe not. Maybe it was less severe. But the storm was big enough so that experienced fishermen were afraid for their lives. All right? So, not Jesus, though. Jesus is just napping away. They wake him up and they say, hey, Jesus, like, there's this huge storm here. And they expect him to do something, but instead he just says, like, oh, why are you guys afraid? It's kind of, yeah, kind of humors me because when we read this, it's usually by ourselves in a quiet place, focused on God, and we're, like, being super spiritual, and we're like, yeah, why are these guys asking Jesus this question? Like, don't they know that he has the power to heal them and do all these miracles? They've seen it happen, and we probably would ask those, those questions that Jesus is asking. But what we're forgetting is that there's this crazy storm going on. There's these winds crashing or swirling. Those waves are crashing along their boat. It says that they're swamping their boat, actually. Um, and they're probably smack dab in the middle of this sea with no way out. That would make me be afraid, no matter how much I believe in God. You guys ever really been afraid? Or you ever, like, experienced a really chaotic time? For me, it was like, try, I was trying to think about this question, and I don't know, like, times that I was, like, ever super afraid. But I remember when I was a kid, and I lived in the basement, and I was the last one down there, I would turn off those lights and run up the stairs as fast as I can because I knew I didn't. Those goblins in the basement are going to get me, you know? Or when I'm going to sleep at night, I would put a blanket or a pillow over my head so that if ever any, if ever any burglar or murderer came into my room, they wouldn't see me. And I'm still here today, so it worked. Yep, both those strategies, I recommend them. But another a chaotic story that, that I have was something that happened um, last year. Um, I was trying to be super dad, and, let, and I, I let Steph go out to this Phil Wickham concert with her friend. And I was like, oh, don't worry. Me and Abby, will hang out. Abigail's my two-year-old daughter. Um, we were having a good time. I wanted to take her on a bike ride. We have one of those bike seat attachments where it's like in between my bike seat and the handlebars that she just kind of sits there. So she's like in between my legs. So we were going on this bike ride. Um, and I took this turn really fast. And like my bike kind of like jutted over really quick. And before I could even react, the bike like smacked into the ground the problem with that is Abby's attached to the bike. So she's got her helmet on, but she smacks her, her head into the ground. She's screaming. I'm freaking out. I don't know what to do. I'm like a mile away from home. So I get, I like pick her up. I leave the bike. I like run to this random neighbor who's mowing his lawn. I say, uh, can you help us? Can you get us like an ice pack or something? The guy's super nice, gets us an ice pack, gets Abby a juice box. He like pl- lets her like see the dog that he has and like playing with the dog. He goes and gets my bike and he gives us a ride home. Um, so that was super nice. Um, we go to the emergency room later. Everything ended up being fine. But it was just one of those things. I think it was like one of those, it was like my first moment as a parent for your parents that like sometimes you just have freak out moments. That was my one freak out moment where I was just like, I don't know what to do. Like I told Steph we'd be fine and she's over at a concert and she's probably like having a terrible time now because I have to tell her. I can't just not tell her, you know. So she's probably worried sick, not enjoying herself. And we go to the ER and... That was chaotic, all right? That was a chaotic situation. But the fear and the chaos that I felt was probably nothing compared to what the disciples are feeling on this boat. They have these these life-threatening waves, and it's probably much more intense. And in life-threatening situations, it's hard to think logically and to find the ability to have faith. 
But there's a huge reaction, or a huge difference in Jesus' reaction to this storm. What we learn and what we see about Jesus is that just as God showed authority in commanding the waters in the Old Testament, he has that same authority to calm the waters in this story. Jesus, it says that Jesus rebukes the wind and, and the sea. That word rebukes, epitimao, is the Greek word, is the same word that's often used in, um, when he casts out demons. So he rebukes it. It's an intense rebuking going on. It's not just Jesus saying, hey, storm, could you stop so we can get across the lake and get where we need to go, please? That's not what's going on. Jesus is like, yo, stop. All right? Quote. (laughs) So he speaks with power. So what Jesus is doing and what Matthew is showing is that Jesus has authority over the physical world. That's our first point today is authority over the physical world. He had just finished healing a bunch of physical ailments. Now he's commanding the physical nature of the world. It's so surprising and so groundbreaking to the people seeing it that the disciples finally start to see and start to understand that Jesus is actually different. He's unlike any other prophet, priest, teacher, leader, king they've ever seen or heard about before in their history. Something He was unveiling an aspect of his authority, something that not even Moses could do without his staff or Joshua could do without the Ark of the Covenant and those parted water stories. His disciples then asked this question, what sort of man is this? Well, they're about to find out to an even greater extent. Let's go to our second story. The next verse, Matthew chapter 8, verse 28. When he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, Two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they went and... They went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, going into the city. They told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Now this is a crazy story. Jesus and his disciples, they finally arrive in Gadara after a crazy, violent night. It's it's a non-Jewish area. And the first thing they come across after that violent night are two demon-possessed men. They're described as fierce. The word is chalepas. Means that that they are so dangerous and so fierce. And the Bible says that they were so dangerous and so fierce and so violent that nobody could even pass along on the road. And they just came from violence. And the first thing they encounter is more violence. Something that the Bible is very clear about is that There's more to God's creation than just our physical world that we live in. The Bible is very vocal about angels and demons and spiritual beings that live as a part of God's creation in addition to our physical world. We don't interact to the same extent with them as we do with other physical beings. But the Bible shows us that there are times where physical and spiritual beings can interact. The angels telling Mary that she's going to have baby Jesus, for an example. This is another example when the men were possessed by 
evil spiritual beings, demons. People who possessed such, these were people who possessed such unnatural strength and violence that people couldn't pass by. They couldn't pass by on the road. It was clear that this situa- in this situation that something beyond just the physical world is going on. So something <clears throat> to recognize is that these demons, they actually recognize who Jesus is and the authority that he has. Something hardly anybody has been able to do up until this point. Not even his disciples. They're still questioning. And the extent of Jesus' recorded interaction in Matthew to these people is simply, go. Then you get this crazy, disturbing images, image of dozens of pigs running down this stink, steep bank, drowning, flailing in the water, gasping for air, like... Clearly, there's something going on here that's more than just physical. At this point, we see that Matthew has shown Jesus having authority over the physical world. He's now unveiled that Jesus has authority over the spiritual world. That's our second point today. Jesus has authority over the spiritual world. He was able to command evil spiritual beings, possessing the men through his authority. Again, something that not even the greatest leaders in Israel, like Moses, could consistently claim. Matthew's making a statement here that Jesus is the embodiment of the one true God, who can command both physical and spiritual, all while confronting and defeating evil. He has authority over the spiritual world. So, it's a massive and earth-shattering claim that nobody was anticipating, that nobody was even understanding at that point. Only God has the power and ability to do this stuff. And when the people had been able to in the past, it was because of God's power that it was possible. The disciples get a little bit more of an answer to their question, what sort of man is this? I want to look at one more story regarding the authority of Jesus, and it's in the very next verse, Matthew chapter 9, starting in Matthew chapter 9, verse 1. And getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some of the people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. All right, so he's in Gadara, with these demon-possessed men, all this whole big crowd comes out and says, go back home. So he gets back in the boat, and he sails all the way across, back to Capernaum. Short trip for Jesus. Short little vacation. He's back in the area where people will welcome him. People didn't welcome him in Gadara. And not only do they welcome him, but they begin to bring their sick to him because they've seen him healed before. 
So we have this intense healing of a paralyzed man and a bold statement by Jesus that if anyone other than the embodiment of the one true God had said would have totally been blasphemous, which is what the scribes were saying. The scribes, who they were learned men and well-versed in scriptures, totally devoted to keeping scripture intact, didn't like this one bit. The people's responses again after this healing was fear. Different than the disciples' fear. The disciples' fear felt cowardice, faithless, and timid in the storm. That word was delas. That's the fear that they felt. While these people felt awestruck or terrified. That word, phobos, where we get our word phobia from. So different fears, but they're both experiencing some type of fear or some type of lack of faith. And it's just it's amplified that the disciples' type of fear was a lack of faith because they should have had faith. Again, it's not the reaction we're probably expecting to see when we see this miraculous work. But there has not been a man that has been able to do this with this type of authority and claim the authority to forgive sins. It's never happened before. It hasn't happened with Abraham or Moses, Joshua. This was a new man unlike they'd ever seen before. New man, and it was, it was new to them. Verse 8 shows us that um, a real man had this authority. They were seeing it in real time. It wasn't just this invisible God or a man empowered by God. This, this was a real man who had this authority. And in this passage of Scripture, we now see that Jesus' authority extends beyond what any other, anyone other than God himself could do. And him saying this, your sins are forgiven, it's an incriminating claim, but it's a true claim. It's a necessary claim. And what he's claiming is that he has the authority over sin. That's our third point today. Casey, you can come on. So first, we have Jesus' authority over the physical world, the spiritual world, and over sin. And while the physical healing is something to marvel over in this story, it's not the focus. The forgiveness of sins is the focal point of this story. It's what gets the scribes upset. It's what frightens the people And it's what shows Christ is ultimately having the same authority as God. So looking once more at the question the disciples posed, what sort of man is this? He's the Savior of the world. He's the Messiah prophesied about in the Old Testament. He's God. So we've seen the power of Jesus, and we've seen how he's unveiled his authority over the physical world, the spiritual world, and over sin. There's some pretty intense stories, especially if we try to imagine ourselves there. That crazy storm, that demon-possessed pigs running down the side of a mountain. So crazy. This man getting healed and a claim of authority. But what does this mean for us? Well, the Gospel of Matthew carries on further. It doesn't just stop there. There's way more to it. Jesus heals more people and after he had given on the, the Sermon on the Mount, we see these nine stories of healings and miracles, three of which we looked at today. And after showing all that he could do to his disciples, he then sends them out in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10, 1, it says that Jesus gave his authority to his disciples to cast out unclean spirits 
and to heal any disease or affliction. Just like he had done himself. They would have that same authority over the physical and the spiritual world. Notice that he doesn't give them authority over sin, though. That one is reserved for God alone. Real quick. You got my text? I'm doing champion. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. But he sends them out to the lost sheep to bring them back to an understanding of the one true God. That's the goal of him sending them out, so that he can bring other people into the understanding of the one true God. And then even later in Matthew chapter 28, after the crucifixion and after the resurrection, Jesus gives the great commission to follow to his followers to go and make disciples of all nations. And they could do that with the same authority and power that Jesus unveiled in these stories. This is something that extends to us as well. It's where we come in. We can trust that God's authority will reign supreme in our world, just as it did when he was on the earth. We don't need to fear like the disciples, or have a lack of faith, um, or have a genuine terrified fear like the other people had. When we are afraid, though, we can remember these great stories to find confidence in Jesus' authority and be eager to follow him. In the words of the great pioneer missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, he says, God isn't looking for people of great faith, but for individuals ready to follow him. I want to read it one more time. God isn't looking for people of great faith, but for individuals ready to follow him. Hudson Taylor, great missionary to China, was one of those men eager to follow God. The disciples weren't chosen for their great faith, at least initially. or because they were so talented or qualified. Missionaries may not be the most qualified or talented. The ones we support are, though. We're very blessed. But what's common among them is that they're eager to serve the Lord. And the common ground between them and us is that God sends us as well. Maybe we're sent to show kindness and love in unnatural ways. Maybe we're sent to teach others about Jesus. Maybe we're sent to be missionaries. Maybe we're sent to give sacrificially to those who around the world are devoting their lives for the spread of the good news. So pray about how you can give or how God can give you faith to trust his authority. Pray that God will send you on a clear path to bring about his glory on this earth. That's our, that's our goal, to bring about God's glory, to maximize his glory. Pray about giving to these missionaries that are such an important part of our church community, locally and globally. It's not too late to change pledges, missions pledges, to give to these missionaries. And we can have confidence through the authority that he has shown and passes on through the Holy Spirit. When we receive the Holy Spirit, we receive power to choose to follow Jesus and serve him. And God can use these stories of Scripture paired with our personal experiences 
to change his world, bring him glory, and bring others into the family of God as well. And that was his whole goal in unveiling his authority, just at the right time. And I think it's just so cool that Casey picked this song, Champion, to sing. I actually told her to sing a different song, and then we were singing, I'm like, whoa, this is like perfect for the message. So we're going to sing this one instead. It talks totally about God's authority and um, the confidence that he gives us and the fact that when we don't have faith, we can remember these stories about God rebuking the sea and God setting free the demons from these people and God healing the physical ailments and the authority that he has. But the authority he has, he's given to us as well. So let's sing this song one more time. Let's ask God to give us faith and to change our hearts and prepare us for what we're going to go out and do in the world. And let's go out and do it this week.